Anyways, we're continuing our series on working for the man, and we're going to invite up Brad Basham to come and visit as we continue to talk with folks that are working in the world, the work world, about uh, what it means to be a Christian and, uh, and working in the business world, too. So Brad Basham needs a microphone. Brad, why don't you tell everybody um, what... Oh, thank you, Brad. Thank you. Um, what is your function on, uh, on when you're not here? I uh, uh, run a business. It's called Basham's Moors. It's in Richardsville, uh, a little bit northwest of Bowen Green. It's the prettiest part of Warren County, just to say that. Um, <laughs> Richardsville, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you didn't get any, like, woot, woot, woot no, from no, anybody. Yeah. <laughs> all, all of Warren County Tanya's is pretty. Tanya's keeping it inside, but she put her hand up. Okay, all yeah. right. Um, all of Warren County is pretty. Um, uh, it's it's a lawnmower shop. We sell and service lawnmowers that we sell, and uh, um, uh, it's been there since. Uh, well, that location's been there since six, uh, seventy-one. Uh, my father started our company in nineteen sixty-five, and my wife and I, Kathy, uh, and I, uh, have owned and run the shop since two thousand seven. Awesome. Well, Brad, uh, we've been talking about what does it mean to be a Christian in the workplace. So, what does it mean for you to be a Christian at work at Basham's Mowers? It means to be, uh, again, I I pointed this out earlier, I I am our manager, so I'm dealing with our our employees, uh, one being my wife, and... (laughs) which is very hard to do. An interesting dynamic. Um, um, yes. And then otherwise, uh, I'm, I'm also an employee in that every time the phone rings, that's another boss that I'm dealing with. In other words, any of our customers are also my boss. So uh, it's, it's a two-way uh, observation in, uh, in my answers. But uh, mostly I, I just uh, I wrote down some words that are important to me, and I, I first out, be honest, um, be helpful, be courteous, um, um, watch my language, be professional with, with customers and employees, um, and, uh, and watch their language. Uh, I really don't like bad language, uh, uh, in, in my workplace. Um, and otherwise the word humble, I kind of came back and put that one in later. Uh, it's, it's so hard to be a business owner and do well in business and still not get too much pride and and uh it's a balance as a business you need to have pride and strength and 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 show that but at the same time as a person you have to be humble and and uh and courteous to all of your um, employees customers and so on uh, is that an easy uh, thing to do or a hard thing to do for you it at, is as in a your industry it is uh, as i said earlier yes it is easy and hard it's i fail constantly uh, it's it's hard to be nice to somebody that's not being nice to me. Uh, uh, you you instantly throw up a wall and 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 give it right back. Sometimes uh, when probably that's the one time you need to be probably more uh, um, friendly in some ways or, or forgiving and and uh, um, courteous to that person some way without uh, giving in completely. But um, it's. Um, it's hard to remember, as I noted. It's hard to remember who to be a Christian to. Uh, you're so often, you know, there's some elderly person or, or somebody in need, and you think, well, I'm going to pray for that person later on. And you need to pray for everybody, uh, the the person who was aggressive to you, uh, and so on. Um, but um, that's the way I look at it. I, I try to remember to think about everybody. That's awesome. Um, 
as we're talking about this, we want to, you know, see pictures of how God is at work in your workplace. So have, how have you seen God at work there in your workplace? Um, it, it's my, my father uh, taught me the right way to, to, um, to do things a long time ago uh, and, and still does. He, he works at our shop still. Um, uh, it... it um, it's 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 hard to again balance business with human caring. Um, um, I, I've got a note here. I, I, this is a, a saying that I made up a long time ago. I can repair your more, but I can only pray for you. Uh, it, it's uh, but that saying that I'm trying to care for the person as well as do the business too is is the thing. Okay, well, great. Um, how do you try to glorify God or at least point to Him through your work? That's easy. Uh, we, uh, I, it is, it is now. I've struggled with that as a business. Uh, you, you, you think, well, I've got to be careful not to offend someone, uh, and then so, at some point you think, well, I personally am a Christian, and uh, so in our mailings, uh, we send Christmas cards out to all of our customers. Uh, I used to be afraid to do that. It used to just be a reminder card that you know this is, uh, you know, summer's gone. Bring your more in now. Uh, but now I, I combine it as a Christmas card because that's what I believe. I want to spread that 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 feeling and the thought and the religion, uh, and uh, I'm not afraid of it. I, I I may offend somebody, but at, at the same time, again, that's my beliefs. Uh, I'm not forcing it, but uh, that's that. Also, and then other. Lastly, uh, I, I have a, a copy of the Ten Commandments on the wall in our office. Um, it's uh, it's old. It's uh, it's uh, it gets some spider webs on it occasionally, but then that makes me look at it and clean it off, and then I read it when I'm doing that. Um, it, it uh, in other words, sometimes I don't notice it there, but it's a it's a reminder to uh, to uh, do things the right way. Awesome. Well, thank you, Brad. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming down. Glorifying God with your business and in your enterprise is one of those things that's difficult to sort of put your finger on. How do you do that well? How do you do that right? Um, Brad didn't know this. I wouldn't, you know, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but uh, I, I did buy a mower not that long ago, and I was looking for who's I going to do this with, and and I didn't tell anybody that I knew, but I knew some people that owned mowing shops, and, and I didn't tell them that I was a preacher or any of those kinds of things. I just said, hey, you know, I'm thinking about buying something over at this, uh, this Basham's place out in Richardsville. You ever heard of it? And, and all the guys that I talked to that own these businesses were saying, man, you know, we used to do business a lot of different places, and that's the place that we do business at now because the way that we get treated there. And, you know, I, like Brad said, he's not perfect. I don't I don't pretend to say that he's perfect, but I, as we think, what does it mean to be a Christian business owner? What does it mean to have a Christian business? I think the number one thing we could put our finger on is that you have a good reputation w- with others in your community. Uh, th- that other people in your community, they may not go, well, oh yeah, he's a good Christian businessman. They would just go, you know, I get treated fairly. I, I get treated honestly. Um, I like to do business with those people. That, I think, is the kind of reputation that, that Paul, even when he was talking about elders back in First uh, Timothy, he says, you know, the people that you want to serve in leadership in your church, they've got a good reputation with who? With those outside the church. You know, I think Paul understood it's easy to get a good reputation with those people you go to church with when you're all sort of putting your best face forward. But, you know, does that person, are they respected in the community beyond that? I think that's critical for us to, to think about and for, for those that are, are working and, and doing business. That what, what is the kind of reputation that we have with the people we do business with? 
One of the things that warms my heart most is when the vendors that come to the church here um, work, uh, then they'll come and attend service here. Nothing warms my heart more than to see the copy repair, the carpet cleaning, the electrician say, you know what, I I liked doing business here so much that I thought I'd come and worship with you and and just give it a shot. I said, well, you know, man, that's fantastic. That that delights my heart to to do business that way uh, when we have to do business here as a church. Uh, but this morning, we're going to turn our thoughts towards Daniel chapter 4 and, and consider what it means to try to glorify God through our work, glorify God through our business, uh, and those types of things. Uh, we've got an interesting chapter here in Daniel chapter 4. Uh, this is really one written by, we might say, a pagan. Nebuchadnezzar sort of inserts this chapter, or as uh, Daniel inserts this chapter, that seems to be sort of a letter from Nebuchadnezzar uh, about this experience that he had. And And because of time, I want to just sort of recount the story for you. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has another vision. And in this vision, it's about a large tree that stretches from the earth to the sky. And ancients were constantly dreaming about trees. And and the reason for that and, and the way that those were interpreted in a lot of the other literature in the ancient Near East is it was sort of seen as a bridge between the earth and heaven. And so whatever that tree was represented something of not just earthly importance, but of divine importance. And so you've got this tree stretching from earth to heaven, and all of a sudden there's a divine watcher, it says, and the tree is cut down uh, for judgment. Its stump is bound with a a band of iron so that it could regrow. That's the thought of that, so that the the stump wouldn't split. Uh, And then it said that for a set set of times, seven times, that that tree will be fallow, but then eventually it will regrow. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is troubled by this dream. He doesn't know what to make of it. And so the text says that he calls everybody but Daniel. He calls all of the magicians, all of the enchanters, all of the diviners to come and interpret the dream. Now, now it would seem that if you've already been through this road once where you've already had a dream and it's already passed and nobody can interpret it but Daniel, you'd think maybe you would start with Daniel. Why does he start with everybody else and then work his way back to Daniel? I'll tell you, a commentator observed, said, you know, it might be that he knew this dream was from God, and he might know that this dream was bad news. It might be that Nebuchadnezzar sort of didn't want to face the music. He didn't want to be convicted, and he knew that's what was coming. And so he invites everybody to come, and if he could just get something that would sort of make him feel good enough about it, maybe he would just move on. But it didn't happen. He calls Daniel. He says, Daniel, what's this dream mean? And Daniel says, I hate to tell you this, king. I wish this was a vision about somebody else, but here's what's going to happen. You're going to be driven insane, uh, the way we would term it today. You'd be driven away from your people, and you will become essentially like a feral, wild animal for seven times. What are those seven times? Are they years? Are they months? Are they weeks? We're not entirely sure, but it is a set period, seven, set, uh, seven periods of set time and that eventually you will be restored. And he says, the reason for this is because you've, t- you've got too much pride. And, and Daniel, a- after interpreting the dream, pick up, in verse, uh, pick up in verse 27. He says, therefore, O king, may my counsel be acceptable to you. He says, atone for your sins with righteousness and your iniquities with mercy to the oppressed so that your prosperity may be prolonged. Daniel sees this dream as a warning, and he says, King, listen, you could avert all of this if you would humble yourself, if you would pursue righteousness, if you would deal fairly with the poor and the oppressed. Uh, The king sort of disregards this advice. Uh, Verse 29, it says, At the end of 12 months past this, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, 
And the king said, Is this not the magnificent Babylon which I have built as a royal capital by my mighty power and for my glorious majesty? Uh, You know, you may like your house a lot. You may think that what you've done in your landscaping is phenomenal, but none of it would compare to King Nebuchadnezzar. None, None of your houses... You might have a house on the National Historic Register of Places, but you don't have a house that qualified as one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Okay, I've been to most of your places, and I'll tell you, you're not quite there. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar's was. Okay, the Hanging Babylon Gardens were on the list of like the greatest things that anybody prior to modern times had constructed. And he's walking around, he's going, "Well, man, look what I built in the peace I've brought." And he had subdued all of his known world, and life was great for him. And he goes, "Look what I've constructed for myself by might." might for my glorious majesty and it's then that that judgment comes and nebuchadnezzar is driven away from his people Uh, eventually he is restored and and i just want to pause for a second because a lot of times i think we read these fantastic stories and we go man that sounds so great and maybe part of us is going is it true did this really happen and you know what's so interesting about this story is this is actually something we have testified to through babylonian literature the Babylon uh, record describes a time when the king, King Nebuchadnezzar or, or Nebuchadnezzar, uh, different kinds of names, uh, was driven away from his people uh, for a period of time in exile, almost self-exile. It doesn't describe why and it doesn't describe how. But unlike most places, when you leave power and supreme power, you don't normally get to come back to that. It's not like the presidency where you're kind of like, all right, I'm going to... I'm going to not be president while I get a root canal and I'm, uh, you know, sedated. And then I'm going to come back. Back in that time, if you got a root canal and you're sedated, you also lost your head. And, you know, somebody else moved in. Nebuchadnezzar is restored. He is restored. The Babylonian record is, is clear about that. The question is why. I think this text answers that. Anyways, so, so this whole text really, it just is a perfect example of something that we see all throughout Scripture. And this is that first point there in your bulletin, is that God opposed, opposes the proud, but He lifts up the humble. God, God opposes the proud. If you've been in the church for just a couple of months, you should know this. If you've read through Scripture, you should be aware that God is frequently on the side of the underdog. All right, you go back to, to these ragtag group of former slaves coming out of Egypt, wandering in the wilderness, and what does the text say? It says that nobody can stand against them. There isn't a nation or an army or a people that can oppose them and win. They should have been defeated and recaptured. It did not happen. Why? Because God opposes the proud. All these other nations that say, by my might, we will subdue you. God says, no, 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 it's by my might that these people are set free. God opposes the proud, but He lifts up the humble. The second thing under this is is that God is slow to anger. God does not delight in judgment. God does not delight in in destroying people or sending them away or making them go crazy. Uh, That's sort of the last resort. God here sends a warning. He sends a dream. Daniel interprets the dream. Daniel encourages King to avoid all of these things, King. God does all that He can to sort of spare us from that. Now, I know sometimes we feel like God's arbitrary and judgment is quick, but that's not at all how it's pictured in Scripture or reality. Now, I want to say, if you're going through a bad time in your life, it's not necessarily because God is bringing judgment to you. There are clearly times that we see where sin, my sin, your sin, uh, just has natural effects. The, the sin inside of the world has those effects. 
But, but this instance is clear that there are times when God brings judgment against the proud, but he does so only after he warns people. Well, what would a warning look like today? Well, we could think of a few. A few signs you might be too self-absorbed. Uh, maybe your child calls to make an appointment with you um, at your office. That might be a sign. Uh, maybe God seems distant. And as you come to church on Sunday, you think, man, God seems really distant. And your response is this. You go, well, I don't have time to deal with that right now. I've got a whole list of other things that need to get taken care of. And maybe in a few years when things slow down or when I get older, that's when I'm going to get right with God. You know that God is distant, but you don't care about it enough to do anything right now. I'm going to tell you that that's a warning sign. All right? If you come to church and you're like, I want to just kind of stay in touch, but I don't want to get serious about it until later, that's a sign you're too self-absorbed. You see everybody else's agenda and desires uh, as far less important than your own. Uh, You might start to see stress fractures in relationships, people doing odd things, avoiding you, uh, leaving you alone. Um, These are signs of stress in a relationship, perhaps that you've become too self-absorbed. Tim Keller's wife uh, helped Tim Keller see life. Tim Keller is the minister at Christ Redeemer uh, Church in New York. Uh, He's also written a lot of great books, and he's a good thinker and Anyways, he told his wife when they moved to New York, he said, listen, honey, I need three years of really long hours and hard work. If you give me three years of really long hours and really hard work, things will settle out, life will be good, and, and we'll sort of resume life as normal, but I just need this time. And she said, that'd be fine. Uh, three years come and go, uh, no slowing. He actually said, you know, listen, I need about a few more months. And so she gives him a few more months. He doesn't say anything. She doesn't say anything. But there is sort of this tension that's building. And she's starting to say, you know, where are you? And he's like, well, I've got other more important things to do. And, and so this is sort of coming to a head until one day Tim Keller comes home. And he opens the door. And he's hanging his coat up on the rack. And, and he hears a smash of glass out on the, the patio. And so he walks out there. And he sees his wife has got the china set they got for their, uh, their wedding. And she's got a hammer, too. And she's smashed a saucer. And then... Then he sees her and he says, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm doing what you're doing to us. And she smashes another one. And he thinks, my goodness, this woman has gone absolutely crazy. I've pushed her over the edge. And now what is going to happen? And so he, he sort of ratchets down. And he's like, listen, honey, let's talk. You don't have to do this. And, and she's like, you know, listen, you've been ignoring us for so long. And she smashes another one. He's like, all right, listen, let's talk. And so, so he brings her inside away from the ledge. And, and they start to talk. And she gets control really fast and and he's they have this great conversation and things she senses things are going to change he says honey i thought you were on the edge and she said well she said i thought this would really get your attention she said nothing else seems to be she said but the truth be told we actually broke those cups that go with those saucers like years ago so you know we had three saucers to spare i was concerned if we had to get to four i didn't know what i was going to do um, but these are kinds of signs maybe nothing so dramatic but but, but when people resort to that, you've got problems, friends. Okay? You've got some problems. Uh, these are signs of coming disasters in relationships with God and with others. Uh, and when, if you ignore these, you will find that Nebuchadnezzar, as Nebuchadnezzar found, that God is complete in his judgment. This is that second point there. Uh, God does not uh, spare any expenses in teaching anybody a lesson. Um, and you know what the sad part is, is it's, it's so often that we learn things in pain. You know, we learn things in difficult places. Wouldn't it be great if when life was going well, we learned as much as we did when, when life was not going well? We should talk about this in our parenting class on Sunday night last week. You don't hardly learn anything when things are going well. Why is that? I don't know. 
pain and failure seem to be great teachers for us. Barry Zito, uh, pitcher for the San Francisco Giants, pitched for him last year when they won the World Series. Uh, he was sidelined uh, with an injury in 2010. Uh, and most athletes don't embrace times of injury where it puts you out for a whole season. Uh, Barry Zito, in an interview with ESPN Magazine, said, you know what, that, that injury was a great thing that happened to me. And very publicly said, you know what, it was that injury that put things in perspective for me. It helped me to see what was important, what I had been neglecting. It helped me to become right with God. Uh, if we could only embrace failure and injury in, in difficult times the way that he did. Uh, so often our stories of failure lead to utter ruin. Uh, and I think the reason for this is when we come into a place of difficulty and we define what success means and we define what healing means and we're so focused on that, I think it restricts what God's able to do. But if we come into a place of humility like Barry Zito and like Nebuchadnezzar is driven to and we say, you know what, I, I don't really profess to know what the right way is. God, would you show it to me? I think it's there that God's able to do an incredible uh, teaching in our lives and healing in our lives. Uh, but failure isn't part of, I would say, <laughs> doesn't have to be part of it, but it, it is a part of a bigger sequence. Hopefully failure is not fatal, but it leads to healing. Let's look here at the second large point. It's pride leads to humiliation, which leads to humility, which leads to restoration with God. If you want to just sort of take a line and sort of slice the part that which leads to humility... So you've got humility, which leads to restoration with God. You could put that there because pride, which leads to humiliation, is optional. All right, that's, that's just only if you want it, okay, friends? Pride leads to humiliation is something that you don't have to go through. I, I want to just say that out here. You don't have to fail. You don't have to be humiliated. You can just opt to have humility. Uh, it's hard to get there. You know, we all want humility. None of us want humiliation, Nebuchadnezzar was suffering from that uh, problem. Nebuchadnezzar was given this great warning. He was driven away like a wild animal, and then he is brought back. Do you think that was a humiliating experience when your you know, assistants and associates and cabinet members are going, so what does it taste like to eat the bark off of trees just raw? We were watching you out there. It was, it was weird. It was really weird. You're like eating grass like a cow. You remember any of that? Yeah, I don't want to talk about it. I mean, this is what it would be like. I mean, you would sort of have a new perspective on things. But sometimes that's what's necessary. We go through humiliation to come to humility, and that leads us to restoration with God. Well, none of us want to eat grass like a cow. So let's try to think through here in the time remaining how we might capture humility in our work world. On Monday morning, uh, as you work, uh, point one is this. Put your hope in God, not yourself or your work. This might seem redundant. It might seem like, well, I don't know that this is necessary. I'll tell you, this is the vital piece. If you view work as your salvation or you view work as the only way that you're going to be provided for or you view work as the only means by which you are sustained in life, you have a misplaced uh, affection for work. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this. He says, anyone with open eyes can see in our faces that we are a people with a heavy, frightful burden on our backs. He's writing specifically about Germany after World War I. After World War I, Germany was a bankrupt place morally and financially. The people were broken uh, there at the Treaty of Versailles. And he is describing their new reality. He says there is one slogan and one only, work. And again, work unless you want your children or you to fall on bad times. Such knowledge oppresses a person 
turns work into a curse and into uh, life into care and anxiety. Let me tell you, this type of anxiety is actually another form of pride. When we normally think of pride, we think of things are going so well and I am so fantastic and life is so great. See what a wonderful person I am. That is pride as we normally define it. But this is another type of pride. It's a pride that says only I can provide for myself. Only I can take care of these things. Only I am sustaining us. Only I am keeping us from abject ruin. That is another form of pride. It puts all of the focus on me and my efforts. And that is not at all the way that God describes it. Work is not going to save you. You are not going to save you. Only God is going to save you. So we've got to start there. If we can get that down, we can then do the second thing, which is to allow work to be an extension of God's creative work in the world. I was reading through Bonhoeffer's uh, writings on work this week, and he... He cracked open for me something, maybe you've seen this your whole life, but I'll tell you. He said there are two institutions that were instituted in the garden before sin. I had never seen this before. Let's, let's look at it. He says, marriage and work exist from the beginning under an appointed divine mandate that must be performed in faithful obedience to God. For this reason, marriage and work have their origin in God. Bonhoeffer says this, listen, before there was sin, before there was a fall, we were commanded to do two things. We were commanded to work. That was command one, actually. God creates Adam and says, Adam, you're going to tend the garden, want you to name the animals, want you to look after things, want you to sort of make this a good habitat for you. That's command one is work. Command two later is after the woman is created. He says, all right, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. The two will be united uh, and the two shall become one flesh. Work and marriage existed before sin, existed before the fall. These were a gift from God. And when we continue in work and we continue in marriage, we continue that same creative power that God had. He's, <coughs> Bonhoeffer goes on, he says, Through marriage, bodily life is propagated. Human beings are procreated for the glorification and service of Jesus Christ. Through work, a world of values is created for the glorification and service of Jesus Christ. What is this world of values he's describing? Well, I mean, you can think of what it is. You work and you get what? You get a paycheck, hopefully. Most people don't work for free. You get paid to work, and, and that's one of the values you're creating. Or you're creating uh, maybe some, some capital, and what I mean by that is maybe a structure or something that's tangible. And Bonhoeffer saying through work we are creating a set of values, things that can be valued all in service to Jesus Christ. Uh, as in marriage, work is not divine creation out of nothing. Rather, it is the production of something new on the basis of the first creation. In marriage, new life. In work, new values. Uh, let me tell you, as I've thought about work this week, I, I was thinking through jobs and, and careers and professions that we have here in the church. And I, it dawned on me, you know, work is creating something new. Really, whatever job you have, you are creating something new. I, I really challenge you to come to me after service and say, my job, I'm not creating anything new. I think you might be. Uh, a couple examples here. One is, uh, one is this. Is, is if you're a builder, obviously you're building a new house. Okay, we got that one down. If you're a manufacturer, you're making a new product. Uh, our careers have shifted away from more of this tangible into this ethereal world. And so you've got a lot of IT professionals, information technology. So what are these people creating as you're typing on computers and it's blips of information and numbers? Well, you're creating a few things. One is you're creating new means of communication. 
Okay, you're creating a new way to communicate with people. I'll tell you, I love IT professionals. When I was traveling, I got to Skype with my family like every night for two weeks. Face-to-face communication, possible because of numbers and bits of data that went probably you know, through China to Iowa, you know, down to Brazil and back to you know, Bowling Green, Kentucky. How it gets there, I don't really know. It's magic. But IT professionals create new ways of communicating. They create new ways of exploring information. And through that, they, 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 they create new understanding and knowledge. Uh, police officers create new peace and justice where it wasn't there previously. Doctors create new health. Repairman creates new functionality and in turn actually redeems what was broken. Garbage man, I just had to pick that one too, creates new order and cleanliness. I mean, let's say we're all appreciative for that. Let's be honest. You really want to have all that stuff piled at your house? Absolutely not. Burning it would be fun, but it would be terrible for the environment. Um, salespeople creates new ownership. Hopefully wise ownership. The list goes on. When we work, we are creating something new. And in creating something new, we are actually extending this creative power of God uh, in the world today. And as a believer, we have to redeem our jobs and we have to redeem our time and understand that what we are doing is a part of this divine mandate to create. Whether it's creating new understanding or, or new knowledge or sharing new information with other people. Once you've recovered that work as a partnership, you can then do this last thing, which is work in humility for God's glory. Uh, We'll have to close out with this here. Uh, You know, I've been wanting to see as we go through this, how does what God say line up with what we would deem as successful in the world? Uh, If you read leadership literature, you'll know that humility, this idea of service, is a huge topic in leadership literature, saying this is a good thing to do, but it's often so neglected. Humility is one of those values we don't always prize, but I think it's one of those that if you really looked at how it was played out in the business world, I think you would see that it's incredibly successful. Uh, there's somebody in modern day that I think is wildly successful, um, not a devout Orthodox Christian believer by any stretch of the imagination, a guy by the name of Stephen Colbert, maybe you've heard of him. Yeah. Um, he's talking about the value of humility and testifying to how it works in reality. Uh, he gives a commencement speech there at Northwestern University, uh, his alma mater, and he says this. He says, uh, I moved to Chicago after I graduated and did improv. He says, now there are very few rules about improvisation, but one of the things I was taught early on is that you are not the most important person in the scene. Everybody else is. And if they are the most important people in the scene, you will naturally pay attention to them and serve them. But the good news is you're in the scene too. So hopefully to them you're the most important person and they will serve you. No one is leading. You're all following, following the follower, serving the servant. He says you cannot win improv. And life is an improvisation. You have no idea what's going to happen next. And you're mostly just making things up as you go along. There's a lot of truth to that. And like improv, you cannot win your life. He says, I have my own show, which is full of very talented people ready to serve me. He says, but at my best, I am serving them just as hard, and together we are serving a common idea. And a sure sure sign that things are going well is when no one really remembers whose idea was whose or who should get the credit for what. I'll tell you, it's true. It's been said that you can get anything done so long as you don't care who gets the credit for it. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that. So this week, as we think about what does it mean to be a Christian in the workforce, I could probably sum it up for you this way. Surrender to God's sovereignty and work in humility. Let's pray. 
Gracious Lord, we come to you and we surrender ourselves to your sovereignty now. And Lord, in this moment where we are humbled before you here, as we've been singing your praises, as we're going to come to this table now and surrender ourselves here, Lord, we pray that you would lift us up in our humility. Lord, that you would exalt us as in Scripture says that you do. That as we surrender to you in humility, as we surrender to you as God, that, Lord, you would do an amazing work in us. Lord, I pray that tomorrow, for everybody that's going to go to work, and I know that's the vast majority of everybody in here, that's practically everybody here, as they go to work tomorrow, Lord, I pray that we would, that we would constantly be mindful that we are to work in humility, not because we're serving a boss or anybody else, but because we're serving you. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. This morning we come now to a song of decision. It's a time we extend for um, folks to make a decision, whether it's to receive Christ, um, to recommit to Christ, um, to make a commitment to the church. This is a time we invite you to do that. Um, if that's not you, uh, we're going to be coming into a time of communion here in a few minutes. And I would encourage you to just take this song to prepare your heart and your mind to draw your thoughts towards the cross and to the work of Christ. Would you please be standing? <laughs> 